Leviticus, we're, we're wrapping it up. We're almost towards the end. There's this section, then we have one more, I believe, and then we'll be uh, exiting Leviticus, entering into uh, Numbers. And so, I don't know if this has been done or not. I've been out a couple times, but I did want to present for you guys some, some references that in case you're interested, you want to study more on Leviticus, dive deep into it. Here are some commentaries or some books that, that I found helpful and others have found helpful. And I want to put them before you. Jace Glar, and I won't give any, I won't give details about it, but just want to mention to them, this is, a, this is probably the shortest out of the group that I'll give you, and uh, you can read much more easier than, than maybe some of the others. Gordon Winham, and I'll have these if you want to write them down. John Hartley, this is the thicker version. Um, This guy, who can, who can pronounce it? Yeah, Japanese professor. So if you want to study someone who's non-white, here's a guy. I've read, I've read just this chapter in Leviticus, and thanks to Jeff Hill, he has a resource, so go get it from him. It's so, so helpful to, to hear uh, from another context, another culture, uh, someone studying the Bible and writing theologically. Uh, and just the language and words that they choose to use, it's it's good to hear. And it was this is a very encouraging read. Leviticus. This is uh, not personally owned, but many would hold it as a, a helpful resource. This would be the most challenging one. I'll go ahead and tell you that it's very critical. And you see the Leviticus one through sixteen. That's only this one volume. There are two other volumes. So three volumes set by this guy, Jacob Milgram. Very, very, very dense, very, very, very thick and critical. If you're interested in that, I thought I would at least throw it before you. And then last one that, uh, that would really probably affect the heart. Not that those other ones wouldn't, but this was by uh, more Puritan era, Andrew Bernard. So there you go. Uh, let's pray and then we'll, we'll get into to the text on Leviticus. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the book of Leviticus, and uh, we pray again, we confess that so often we have neglected it and other texts like it because it's hard, it's challenging, it's not easy, it's difficult, it's, um, and, and we, don't, we don't want to take the effort and dig deep and, and learn more about you in, in those challenging ways, and we pray that you forgive us for those thoughts and notions that are, that are ungodly because you've given us all of your word for our growth, for our knowledge of you, so that we might know you and love you supremely through your person, through the person of Jesus, as you revealed yourself in him and the way that he fulfills everything in all the scriptures like he said he did. And so we pray that even tonight as we, as we look at Leviticus, this big section that you would help us to glean from the text truths about who you are and ways that we're to live in a world that's foreign to you and that's hostile to you and to your people. So give us grace to pray even now and help us. We need your spirit. So move on us in a powerful way in this short amount of time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, sorry I haven't announced it. We are in Leviticus 23. You can begin turn there if you haven't already. Leviticus chapters 23, 24, 25. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to cover it all probably, but we're going to try. We're going to make an effort. Uh, I will give you that much. And 
Before we actually get into the text, let's read our theme again. Let's read it together. Everyone can see it. Think behind it. Leviticus is about God graciously providing a way for sinful and corrupt people to live in His presence. Leviticus 23. I will read the first four verses and then we'll get into the content. Yahweh spoke again to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, Yahweh's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there's a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to Yahweh in all your dwellings. These are the appointed times of the Yahweh, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. And then he lays out before the people these times of appointments, these feasts as they've been called and what we'll see as we look into the text. Um, trying to think of a way to dial our memories in, into this text and figure out what it's talking about. And the closest I can think of, which is not perfect, but our, uh, does anyone have yearly, annual meals that you prepare that's the same year by year by year. Same time of the year, same month, same week, same day. You prepare this one meal that's pretty special for this day. Can anyone, there's a few that's in my mind, but can anyone think of something uh, like this that you participate in? Thanksgiving? Anything else? Christmas. Christmas? Some people have, uh, yeah. The only they, they have a particular meal that they only prepare at Christmas time. New Year's. Birthdays. Birthdays, that's right. Special moments, special times that you come together and it involves people, it involves food. So that's similar to what's going on here. Similar to what the Lord is saying to Moses. He's appointing them to do something. Just to, to remember something, to celebrate something. And, and in this chapter, we're, we enter into a little bit of the calendar for uh, the Israelites and what it looked like and what it centered around. And it was really centered around these different feasts that were designed by Yahweh, given to the people so that they might uh, come together and enjoy worshiping Him together as people. As they ate the food, it was a fellowship. It was intimacy involved. They were, it was corporate in nature and they, they would come to eat and fellowship and enjoy thinking of who God is. And uh, God's the one who dictated how they were to worship Him. It wasn't the other way around. All of life was to center around Him. And so the purpose of this chapter 23 in Leviticus is to lay out these certain meetings that are given throughout the year. And they express, again, Yahweh's willingness to meet with His people. Now, a few, a few key words that we'll see, if you were to read it on your own, uh, which we're not going to do tonight, but you'll see these, some of these great words repeated, and that's holy convocations. It's used 11 times in this chapter, and it's basically a sacred assembly, a, a summoning, or a national religious ceremony that's to take place. The word Sabbath, which we're all familiar with, that's used nine times in this text, and it just means to cease or desist. It constituted a day of rest, which we know is, is rooted in the creation account 
worked for six days, he created the seventh. He, he rested, he took a break. It's the idea of taking a break from the normal routine of life to, to rest your body, to rest your mind, to devote the day, the time, purely to the worship of Yahweh. He was to be their sole focus. And this is the basis, this Sabbath is the basis for the feast. Uh, as they are mentioned as a requirement when we get to each one. Uh, this phrase, offering by fire, is used seven times, and the uh, NIV translates it as food offering. The, the NASB calls it an offering by fire. And uh, so these holy times of the feast, they, they're described, including, again, the holy convocation and an offering by fire. Now these are split up in different numbers. This is... Uh, Maybe very hard to see, and I apologize. It's from the ESV Study Bible, and people will kind of try to clap, uh, classify, organize them in different groups. How many are there? Five? Are there six? Are there seven feasts? And so they, the NAS, the ESV, I'm sorry, has has given seven, two, three, four, five, six, seven feasts. Which we're not going to break this down. This, if you have that, it's a helpful resource that you can look at it, and it gives you the reference, the time of the year, specific time, the modern equivalent day for, for us and then the significance of what the feast represented. So that's just uh, a guide that you can look at and go by, but we're going we're gonna to look at the main ones, the unleavened bread, which is connected with the Passover meal, which we're already aware of. We've heard of that, and we've heard of um, the Day of Atonement. Also included are the is the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, and the Feast of Booths. And so this word feast, it literally is a, pilgrim, a pilgrimage feast. It's a festival gathering. They would have to travel to a, one central location to celebrate this. It couldn't just happen anywhere. They made this pilgrim. And they, many Jews, they still practice these feasts today. You can look it up. And they're very committed to celebrating these events and worshiping Yahweh through them. Deuteronomy 16 would say this about the three primary feasts. Three times a year, and all your males shall appear before Yahweh your God in the place which He chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Weeks and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before Yahweh empty-handed, but every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of Yahweh your God which He has given you. So we see also in Exodus and Deuteronomy a lot of instructions about keeping these feasts and, and what they're about and why they exist. And in Numbers 28-29, there are actually instructions on sacrifices and how they're, be, they're to be made and connected to these feasts. All that's not in Leviticus chapter 23. That's just to tell you it's spoken of elsewhere in the scriptures uh, about what these feasts mean and how they're to be gone about. Interestingly enough, Exodus 5-1 says that afterward Moses and Aaron, they came and they said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. I just said it's so, it's so interesting and amazing that God is rescuing his people out of Egypt so that they can celebrate this feast that, that we're talking about and that we're, we're seeing here in Leviticus 23. So several feasts, they're split up in the spring feast and the harvest feast, and it starts it all off with Passover. We already know what that is, so uh, this is going to be very broadly 
broad strokes over these feasts. We don't have time to dive into all of it, especially because of the, the three chapters that we want to try to cover tonight. So we're just going to be mentioning them, giving you a brief overview of what they're about and what they meant, theological purpose of, the, of these feasts, and um, you'll be encouraged to study more about it on your own. So the Passover was connected with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I get that from Luke 22.1, because it says the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also called the Passover. So those two were connected together. They were, uh, the Passover happened, and then the very next day they began the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was for seven days they were to eat unleavened bread and present an offering of fire to Yahweh. On the first day and on the seventh day was to be separate, was to be. Uh, dedicated as a holy convocation, and this was to call, this was to recall to them God's rescue in, out of slavery in Egypt, which we're going to see uh, is the theological purpose for these feasts. We'll see it particularly at the beginning and at the end, and then in the middle. But uh, and that serves kind of as as a bookend as far as this is what they're all about: is to stir their affection, stir their reminder about an act that God did of who He is and what He's done. In Deuteronomy 16.3, it says, You shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread. The bread of affliction. He calls it the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste so that you may remember all the days of your life the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So, it served, the purpose of the feast of unleavened bread was to serve as a reminder for, to trigger their emotions as they tasted the unleavened bread. It caused them to remember something. And that was God's great saving act as he rescued them out of Egypt. The next feast is the first fruits and the, the feast of weeks. Some call it the feast of, of, uh, of harvest. And this is the idea is when they entered the land and reap its harvest, there to bring the, the, the sheep or a bundle of grain to the, to the priest, the first fruits of the harvest. They presented it to the priest so that he could wave it as a wave offering before Yahweh. This harvesting time was, was a time of rejoicing of what God's provision and what he had done for his people. And so every year they're to acknowledge that. They're to recognize God's care and, his, his, uh, and the first fruits are to be to him. And, and so the first fruit is not specific, specified as a feast in particular, but it is identified with this feast of weeks. So you will see some classified and say it is a feast, but uh, I believe it's to be joined with this whole feast of weeks, which comes later. And it begins actually 50 days after that wave offering of the sheep. 50 days after that, the, they, they're to present an offering, burn offerings, drink offerings, Sin offerings, peace offerings, all, all these offerings, they're to do no work. And they're to practice this as a perpetual statute throughout the generations in your dwelling places. Verse 22 says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very corners of the field, but leave them for the needy and the alien. For I am Yahweh, your God. And here we see, and what God's communicating to his people during this feast is that God's concern for the poor, for the outcasts, for those who don't have as much. You're to present your first fruits to God, being grateful, but also you're to uh, not reap all of your field. Leave the corners, leave the edges for those who, are, uh, who don't have as much, who are poor. 
So he's, he's commanding Israel to not forget the less fortunate. During this time of celebration, of rejoicing of all that God's done, be mindful of the outcasts. Be mindful of those who aren't as materially gifted or blessed as you are. And so God expects His people to be generous. Deuteronomy describes this wheat, this feast in this way. You shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks to Yahweh your God with a, a tribute of a freewill offering. You shall give just as Yahweh your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before Yahweh your God. You, your son, your daughter, your male, female servants, and the Levite who's in your town, the stranger, the orphan, the widow, in the place where Yahweh your God chooses to establish His name. And here it is again. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So here we get We hear it again. This, this, this repeated reason for doing it. You were to remember something. And it's particularly that you were a slave in Egypt. And that's why you were to observe these statutes. As Feast of Weeks in, in the New Testament, we see it pop up the day of Pentecost. That's what this word means. The Greek word Pentecoste is 50. And so uh, it was the in, the, in the, in Acts, we see the day of Pentecost, we see the Father's gracious pouring out of himself, mainly the Holy Spirit upon his people and blessing them in very rich ways. His provision, like in the Old Testament, they celebrate his provision for the crops. In the New Testament, he's provided the Holy Spirit for his people, and it's a very worshipful experience. That caps up the, uh, the spring feast. We have starts off with the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks. In the autumn, they would also practice feasts. So this was year long. It was, it was not, uh, it was constant. And so it starts off with the blowing of the trumpets, which started, which kicked off the Day of Atonement. In verse 23 through 25, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing the trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to Yahweh your God. So then we get into the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16. We've seen that. We're not going to go into details about that. But... They prepared this day again by the blowing of that ramble. And it said, in, in this chapter it says you, that it was to humble your souls. In verse 29 it says that there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his work. That humble your souls, the ESV would say afflict yourself. And we see how serious God is about this command, right? What's the punishment for someone who doesn't participate in the Day of Atonement? By humbling yourself. What happens? You're cut off from your people. We've seen what that means. It's not something you want to happen. From there, we move to the Feast of Booths, which is the last feast that we'll look at. And does anybody know what this booth is? Any idea? Temporary well, yeah. Any idea what it was made out of? Or basically a tent, yeah. It was a thick. It's like what they lived in uh, when they were, as they were strangers and aliens, and as they were moving from place to place to place. 
They lived in these small thickets, temporary shelters. And verses 40 through 44 says, The first day you shall take for yourself the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. You shall rejoice before Yahweh your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to Yahweh for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statue throughout your generations. You shall celebrate in the seventh month. Here it is, verse 42. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. So that your generation, here's the reason, the theological purpose, so that your generation may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. And then we see verse 44. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of Yahweh. And so the purpose again was to remind them of God's graciousness and what he had done because he knew they were going to forget. He knew the people were going to grow very prideful and forget all the good things that God had done. All the great work. How can you forget the parting of the Red Sea, the rescue? I have no idea. But they did it and we do it all the time. We forget the cross. We forget God's great work in our lives. And we needed reminders. They needed reminders of who God is and what he had done. So that's the basic purpose of these feasts. To stir their heart. To seek the Lord. To set apart certain days that were to be observed annually every year throughout the year and this provided an interruption to the normal routines of life it kept though before the people ongoing reminders of Yahweh's covenantal love and his faithfulness to them of his power when he rescued them of his kindness and faithfulness to provide for them in the wilderness and his abundant provision for them in the land of promise they were called to draw near to Yahweh because these feasts of worship, they were fellowship offerings, offerings and, and opportunities to fellowship with Yahweh. He's the one who initiated it. He's the one who's showing the willingness to draw near a holy God wanting to draw near to sinful, corrupt people. And he's given them so many opportunities to do it in amazing ways that are celebratory. They were corporate in nature. Again, again, it's the focus on, is on God's people. Not just individually go off and do it whenever you want, however you want to eat your own meal. No, everybody came together to enjoy this feast. And we also see the word feast in, mentioned in the prophets in the New Testament and the coming of Christ. It's not just an Old Testament Leviticus term. The Jews, again, as they continue to celebrate, the Passover is the longest running feast roughly 3,500 years. But we see the biblical themes. They, they take on new meanings with the coming of Christ. Now He transforms their significance. In the New Testament, we see again the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread uniquely connected to Christ and His cross work. He eats the Passover meal with His disciples just before His death. And He explains what He's about to undertake for them. Passover. But guess what? God also raised him from the dead on the first day of the week following the Passover. And what feast would this have been? The Feast of Unleavened Bread. The, the week following the Passover when he was raised. That feast pointed back to what? 
God's rescue of Israel out of Egypt. So again, we see that God is resurrecting his son. He's doing the even more, the greater, more powerful rescue of God's people. And it's not just a select tribe. His death and resurrection constitute the great saving word for the new covenant people between Yahweh and his multi-ethnic people. So remember, these feasts were opportunities to experience Yahweh in unique and particular worshipful fellowship, rejoiceful ways. The prophets also spoke about a feast that would come in the end. Isaiah speaks about it. He says, Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, refined aged wine. In the New Testament, it appears that all these feasts culminate in the language of this huge banquet. Jesus speaks about in, in, the, in the Gospels. In Matthew 22, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to what kind of feast? A marriage feast. As he teaches parabolically. This marriage supper of the Lamb, or this marriage supper of God we see in the Gospels and in Revelation, is an eschatological feast that awaits those who persevere to the end. Those who persevere are invited to dine at the finest and richest banquet ever to be enjoyed. And Christ is the one who lays the table before us. And we get to dive in into the eternal buffet that is ours by virtue of our union with Him. And truly, Jesus is a feast worth anticipating, longing for, and enjoying for ages upon ages to come. We'll never have any lack of Him, or we'll never be too stuffed not to want any more of Him. It's an everlasting and unending, perfect delight. Well, there's the feast. Leviticus 24. Let's move on. We see here the mention of a perpetual lamp and the bread of the sanctuary. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Command the sons of Israel. This is chapter 24. Command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order on the pure, God, on the pure gold lampstand before Yahweh continually. And then he talks about taking fine flour and baking 12 cakes. So what's the purpose of this lamp, of this bread? Well, the lamp used pure olive oil. And it was uh, set on a golden lampstand. It was to burn continually. And Aaron, the priest, was the one to tend to them, to keep them in order so that they would function morning and evening. Do you, you remember the word lampstand used in Revelation when we were studying it? Anybody remember the connection there? The, ch the church, yeah. The church was called the lampstand of God. And... Who do we see in the middle of the lampstand? Jesus is in the middle of the lampstand. What is Aaron to do with this continual burning of the lamps? What is he doing in the temple? Day and night, he's tending to them. He's making sure that they continue to burn. He's in the middle of the lampstand, making sure they're functioning right. What is Jesus doing? In the middle of his lampstand, in the middle of his church, he's making sure that we're burning right. He's making sure that there's a continual flame of fire of the Holy Spirit within us. Making sure that we're functioning like we ought to. Doing what lamps should do. And that's burning. That's to give the witness. The testifying of who Christ is and what he's done. 
The bread, here, 12 cakes of bread, 12 tribes of Israel. In Exodus 25, 30, this phrase, this bread is also called the bread of the presence, but quite literally, the bread of the face. In 1 Samuel 21, we have the account of David coming in to the temple to eat, into the tabernacle, to eat the bread of the presence as he's fleeing from Saul. But guess what? It wasn't lawful for David to do that. Only the priests were to eat. But what did Jesus say in Matthew? He, re he recalls this story to the Pharisees, and he, he tells them, look how David did this. He came in where he wasn't supposed to, but he was hungry, and his men needed food to eat, so he gave it to them. And we're not given much about these things, but these provided an environment, again, for me a meal to be had with Yahweh. This is a continual fellowship. I think that's kind of what may be pointing to in this text. And then we, it follows a short narrative about a man who curses the name of God and he dies for it. So basically two men are fighting. It's an, an Israelite and a half-bred Israelite. Let's look at it. Now in verse 10, Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel. And the, the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. So they're fighting. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. It said his mother's name was Shalometh, the daughter of debris of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody so that the command of Yahweh might be made clear to them. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Bring the one who was cursed outside the camp. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. Then all the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. Man, the Lord is serious about his name. It's actually in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, not to abuse the name, do not the name and not take it in vain. He takes it very seriously, even to the point of killing the man because we don't know all the details, but he spoke Yahweh's name in vain and he suffered severely for it. The punishment was death. And we've seen that. We're, we're, we're probably, that probably doesn't come as shocking to you. Blasting the name of God, you're going to die for it. Moving on from there, verse 17, we have this, uh, this law of lex talionis, which is a fundamental principle of biblical and Near Eastern law that says that punishment must be appropriate to certain offenses. It sets an equivalent penalty for certain offenses, whether it's killing or injuring an animal or a human being. And then this caps off verse 21. Moses spoke to the sons of Israel and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp and stoned him with stones. Thus the sons of Israel did just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. So it seems kind of uh, random to throw this story in the middle of, of uh, the religious festivals. Um, and it's not always easy to explain, well, why'd you put it here? And what does it mean here? But the Lord has given it to us in this section. And we see that uh, he takes certain things very seriously. And that's blaspheming his name. 
And we see these people obeying. They did what he was supposed to do, what they were supposed to do. In blasphemy, in the New Testament, Mark 3, chapter, chapter 3, we also see Jesus addressing blasphemy. And he addresses Lex Talionis, this rule about punishing offenders in Matthew chapter 5. So this continued even to New Testament teaching. They understood what these things mean. They weren't foreign to them as much as they are foreign to us today. And so, continuing to push through 25, then Yahweh spoke to Moses, chapter 25, verse 1, Yahweh spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to Yahweh. Six years you shall sow your field, in six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crops. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to Yahweh. So just like the people had a rest, Sabbath day, to rest their body, their minds, we have a concept of this understanding that the land that they lived on was also to experience, enjoy a certain Sabbath. Again, they worked the fields for six years, but on the seventh, the whole year is to be a Sabbath, to be take a break, let the land rest. During that year, it was to lie fallow. Don't sow, don't prune, don't reap or gather anything to be harvested, stored, or sold. But everyone was free to eat off this land, both man and beast. And every 50th year, continuing on this chapter, every 50th year, a jubilee is proclaimed. In the, in the jubilee year, the land reverts to its original owners and slaves were set free. So the land wasn't a permanent sale. It was only on an extended lease. And the men were given a chance to wipe their slates clean and start over. The rich, they had to part with the land that they owned and the slaves that they owned during this time. While the poor were able to recover their land and their freedom. They were able to return to their own land. And John Hartley, one of the commentaries I recommended, said this about this chapter. He says it attacked head on the dehumanizing powers of debt and landlessness. So that's what this chapter is about. And verses 8, you're to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and, shall, and each of you shall return to his family. Verse 11, you shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather its from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. This jubilee was, was started off with the, the blowing of a ram's horn. It began this, uh, this event. Verse 17 through 18, it says, Do not take advantage of one another. You shall not wrong one another. You shall fear your God. For I am Yahweh your God. You shall thus observe my commandments, keep my judgments, so as to carry them out, so that you may live securely in the land. Well, you, you would understand people might get anxious and worry about what they're going to eat and how 
life's going to function there in that year. Verse 19 through 22, the people actually, they said they will become anxious over what they're going to do concerning the food. And Yahweh reassures them of his constant provisional kindness. He says, I will order. I will command. I will appoint. I will ordain that you're going to have this food. He reminds them of all these things, particularly the nature that it's all under his control and his provision. Verses 23 through 24 says we have this law of redemption. And the, the theological principle underlying all this is that the land belongs to Yahweh. He says the land is mine, verse 23. The land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. So this law aims to preserve the reality that the land ultimately belonged to Yahweh. And that any part of it that they had or thought that they owned was just a gift from the Lord. It was a gift from above. It, it was belonged to Him by virtue of His creation of it. And yet we see from the beginning, He desires to share His things with human beings, with sinful and corrupt people. He's sharing the land with His people. In Genesis, the command to be fruitful and fill the earth. The whole idea was for people to fill the earth, fill the land, enjoy all of God's creation. In Genesis 17, verse 8, it says, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And that's God talking to Abraham. He's, he's promising him, you're going to get this land. It's what we're reading about now in Leviticus. He's going to give them this land. Then this land's a major theme in the biblical storyline, which Isaiah 65 speaks of a new recreated land or recreated earth that is coming. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks in Matthew 5, 5, that the meek will inherit the earth. See, Yahweh holds nothing back from His people. It's all of ours because it's all of His, and, and we belong to Him. Another important thing to point out in this verse 23, the land is mine, but he also says, for you are aliens and sojourners with me. Just as they were in Egypt, even so in the promised land. They, they own nothing naturally. Yahweh gives them all that they have so that they remain humble and they realize who their creator and their sustainer is. Verse 25, we have this idea of the kinsman redeemer. Man becomes poor and needs to sell his property. His nearest relative can purchase what they've sold so that they can have it back. Verses 35 to 42, we see words of, of kindness, instructions for the people to be kind towards their poor brothers. Totally prohibiting interest payments on loans to the poor. The principle here, verse 38, I am Yahweh your God, again, who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan. And to be your God. See, God's generosity is meant to serve an example to how they were to love and to treat one another. Don't make your fellow brothers slaves, he says, because verse 42, because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. So Yahweh had rescued them from the slave conditions in Egypt and this legislation prevents them or it's to pre prevent an Israelite from being reduced to that status again. To, to have such uh, oppression upon them that they've already had to experience and have been rescued out of. It's like, don't treat your fellow brother this way. You're to love them. You're to be kind to them. 
You're to live in a very generous and compassionate way. Do not make your brothers slaves. Verse 47 to 55, we have instructions on redeeming a poor man. So this, this whole idea of jubilee, of, of rejoicing, of being set free. Isaiah speaks of a theme of jubilee in connection with the Messiah's work in Isaiah 61, 1-2. through 2. And In the New Testament, Jesus quotes Isaiah. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue of the Sabbath. He stood up to read the book. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handled, handed to him. He opened the book, found the place where it was written. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. That phrase right there is connected with the jubilee, the releasing of slaves, the freedom. He says, He has sent me to proclaim a release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he says after reading, there's more to it, but after he reads, he says, today the scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing. So we're hearing here, what we're seeing is instructions of how Israel was supposed to live their life. Leviticus 19, 18, they're commanded to love their neighbor as themselves. And so these laws are to govern Yahweh's people as the moral principle. They, they're to govern them around certain morals. Yahweh, see, He had been very gracious towards them, and they were to imitate that love to their brother and sister. Motivation. What's the motivation for Israel to keep these legislations? Verse 17. Fear your God. You shall. He says, you shall fear your God, for I am Yahweh your God. And then verse 55. Because they were one servants who whom the Lord had brought out of Egypt. Therefore, I am the Lord your God, and they are to fear Him. So, it's out of living out of fear for the Lord because of, because of who He is and because of what He's done and because of the rescue that they've already been experienced in Egypt. They're to, their lives are to be different. They're not to live like their oppressors once were. They're to live like a transformed people who imitate the God that they've seen and the ways that He's the way he has uh, interacted in himself in our lives. So kind of to wrap all this all up, Yahweh appointed times throughout the year where the Israelites were to stop the normal pace of life and have certain appointed holy gatherings where they focused on Yahweh and his redemptive work and saving them as a people. They centered around feasts, which again communicated intimate fellowship with Yahweh that he desired with his people. These holy times are the days were to be exclusively focused on Him. And this was to bring to mind His power, stir their affections for Him so that they would always live in this total commitment to Him. They were also to live as those who had been rescued from slavery and been given a new life. They were to love their neighbors of themselves, not abuse or exploit their fellow man, but show acts of kindness and mercy because this is how Yahweh is and they were to reflect again His character. So, you and I were called to live the same way. Considering holy days and holy times, Jesus said himself, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Hence, he's the Lord of all Sabbaths. And Sabbath being about rest, only in him can we find true rest. Can we find true rejoicing, yeah. which accompanied these feasts. They were times of rejoicing before Yahweh. Rest your body, your mind, worship him, but rejoice. 
Jesus is the only place where we can truly find these things, where we can truly rest, truly rejoice in Him. Rest not just inwardly, but outwardly as well. We have direct communion with Him through the Spirit poured out on us in the abundant provision so that we're filled and conformed to a life of love and holiness that shows that you and I, that we are strangers on this earth, that we are exiles as we live in full dependence on our Heavenly Father, always looking to Jesus for strength and perseverance. So that's the last of the slide. But I'm not too good at these things, but <laughs> hopefully some of it can be helpful. Um, well, that caps up 23, 4, 24, 23, 4, and 5. And we got 26 and 27 left. And then, uh, yeah, hopefully... It's kind of hard to do this, but uh, hopefully some things can be helpful. And uh, not just a learn time of learning because it's a lot of information, but uh, hopefully the, the information can you can make connections to how it affects us. Uh, hopefully you can see where it, it does uh, cause us to live lives that are differently because of how God has revealed Himself in the Book of Leviticus. You know, and particularly this book, how can we live differently? So. I've aimed to do that, and I'll probably fail, but uh, we have a few moments for questions if, and comments, if anyone has any, so we'll take time to do that. Um, now, if anything stood out, or if you want to share something that's more clarifying than what I was able to do, please do. Exodus, Deuteronomy speaks about. And so how is it connected to the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Well, the purpose of, the, of that celebration, again, was to remind them of the rescue from Egypt. And so the thing that I found interesting is that when Jesus died, it would have been during that week of Unleavened Bread where they were to remember the rescue. And he's saying, oh, it's me. It's found in me. I'm here to rescue all of people from every day. No. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. It was so helpful to see that. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Ben. So I always have a similar question we go through the Leviticus thinking through like that was before the cross, right before the cross of um, So we don't celebrate the Passover because well, I guess the first question is would you say that our feast that we celebrate really is the Lord's Supper? Would that be looking back to the cross and before his return? The, the Lord's Supper, the way it's connected to all the. Now the feast that we celebrate as Christians. Yeah. Um, somebody else want to answer? Before I may. Jeff? I'm 